Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everybody, this is the Cricket Badger podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bêche, meaning digger. Hello, everybody. Welcome along. Another edition of the Cricket Badger podcast. It's, this is episode number 515. So we've had a few in the past. Some have been about uh, tournaments as we've gone through, cricket in general, and uh, many of them have been where we've been uh, greeted by the great and the good of the sports. And today is no exception. I'll bring him onto the screen now because it's a pleasure to welcome to the Cricket Badger podcast, David Fulton. How are you? Uh, good morning, James. I'm really well, thank you. Yeah, just nice to have a day off and chatting cricket. Day Good off, enough. and you're on the screen anyway. So uh, there, there you go. Um, so I'm ruining your day off, really, aren't I? Um, we're going to give you the uh, Cricket Badger 20 questions. It's something yeah. we've done with quite a lot of people down the years. And just as I was telling you prior to pressing record there, some of them are easy. Some of them might even just need one word as an answer. Some of them are a little bit more involved than that. But let's start off with question number one, which is often the best place to start. Why cricket? What was it about cricket that got your juices flowing, made you love the game and made you want to devote a lot of your life to it well I think back in the day there was a lot of cricket on telly and I would have just seen a lot and watched a lot um loved the kind of gladiatorial battle between bat and ball I was also a, a junior international chess player so I kind of like the strategy of it I like the the idea that you could set traps that you could put fields in different positions that there was a lot of tactics involved and yeah I mean I played all sport there was chess and table tennis when I was really young um, and football obviously um, which everyone played and, and, and cricket I just kind of felt that that was my my point of difference I was better than other people at cricket whereas there were footballers who were just as good as me and and, and it just kind of lent itself that way but always always loved the game always liked the, the strategy of it and found that um you know i could score runs i couldn't bowl very well but i could get a few runs you'll find as we go through these it's, it's never 20 questions so i always ask supplementary ones and what what age were you 
David, when you first thought, this is a job now, this is something I can actually devote a career to? Oh, I never really felt, thought of it as a, as a job change, to be honest. Not until probably I'd got the second team 100 and had Colin Page, late great Colin Page, offer me a contract. It was something that I kind of stumbled into. I knew that, that I wanted to play sport and I knew that I'd love to play cricket, but I never really thought of it as a, as a job. It was always something that was a, a passion and a hobby and something I loved doing and that I was good at. But uh, I think that was one of the kind of nice things when I finally, I think when I played for Kent under-19s, we got three pounds in a little brown envelope. And that was the most most excited I'd ever been playing sport. We were suddenly getting paid to play. I'd always given five or 10 pounds as as match fees. And suddenly someone was giving me three pounds to play cricket. Um, And then not long after that, got offered a a contract before I went off to university. So I stumbled into professional cricket. It was not something from an early age. I went, I am going to be a pro. Did it ever feel like a job? Or was it always just enjoyable playing sport? But yeah, obviously when your livelihood depends on it, I guess there are more serious days that, uh, that crop up it, it felt like a job for a lot of the um the, the, the early part of my career which was one of the real issues i'd gone from loving the game just wanting to play the game to suddenly realizing that there was a career it was a career and it became a job and it was only when i re-engaged with that kind of youthful me and tried to put myself back in my 11 year old shoes and go let's play with a smile on my face because at the end of 2000 matthew fleming said to me he said Dave, he said, you, you've hung on to the contract by the skin of your teeth. and um, We need to see the real Dave Fortin in 2001. So I thought, well, if I'm going to get sacked at the end of 2001, then at least I'm going to go out having played my way, having played with a smile on my face and enjoyed it. And then I you know, was player of the year at the end of that season. So, And that was tapping into having fun and remembering it as a passion rather than it being a job. Because like a lot of professionals, you, you get worried about your next paycheck, you worry about staying in the team, you're not playing with the freedom that you'd like to play with. So they're all all of that that you've probably had hundreds of times on here with, with former pros what well, was the case but I was able to kind of shift that back again I've spoken to a couple of people in the past and they've said uh, yeah I've asked them the question because I, obviously I, I've never played professional cricket but I've watched it since I was seven I started watching it at Kent actually we'll talk about that maybe a bit, a bit later but the uh, I said you know if, if you're covering the game what can a ex-pro give that somebody hasn't actually been out there in the middle not give and their answer generally speaking is if you are in the last over of a game, you need 10 to win. It's your livelihood. It's your, you know, getting across the line maybe gets you that contract next year. There's pressure, which maybe somebody from over the other side of the boundary rope doesn't feel. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think you are aware of that. Potentially back end of the year, if your contract's up, there are moments in your career where you realise you're potentially playing for your livelihood and your career. I think where one of my strengths was always being able to kind of distance myself from that feeling and and try and remind myself it's just a game. I think I've been quite philosophical and had some perspective that cricket, whilst it's a brilliant game and whilst we love it, is just a game. It's not life and death. It's a bunch of blokes hitting the ball around with a stick in a field. (laughs) In the end, that was probably what did for me when it was time to retire because I looked around and thinking, I've done this for quite a lot of my life. There must be more to life than hitting a ball around. And when you start to think like that, then it's probably time to retire. And lo and behold, I now talk about blokes hitting a ball around with a stick. So not much has changed. We do overcomplicate cricket at times because literally the base level, it is a ball and a stick, isn't it? If it hadn't been for um, cricket, what would you have done with your life? That's question number two. We're getting through them. (laughs) Question two. Um, Well, um, I mean, I did a politics and international relations degree at University of Kent, um, and I've always wanted to try and make a bit of a difference and felt that perhaps politics would have been the way to to do it. And I look at the current 
government. I think, Christ, I'm sure I could have done a better job. But let's not go too deeply and delve into that one, James, I think. But yeah, they're having a stinker at the moment. And, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd love to be in bloody Boris Johnson's shoes doing a better job. But that would have... We, we could do a 10-part podcast on that yeah, very easily. We, there's yeah. probably... Every listener could probably do a better job than he's doing at the moment. <laughs> not, that, not that it's an easy job, but hey-ho. So, yeah, politics potentially, um, politics potentially journalism. Um, but, yeah, it, it was something that while I was at uni, I was, I was still kind of weighing up. And then, as I say, fell into the professional cricket game. So if somebody came along to you now and said, Dave Fulton, do you want to stand for us at the next election? Would you consider yeah, it? Yeah, I, I won't. We'd have to talk about which party it was for, but uh, <laughs> yeah. um, I probably would look at it. Yes, definitely. Badges are furry creatures. 85% of women badges think bad grooming is a major turn-off. 80% of women badges think men should trim below the belt. 89% of men think good grooming is essential to the professional success. Don't just dismiss it out of hand. Get on there, manscaped.com. Check out their great range of male grooming accessories. Hygiene, appearance, attractiveness, confidence. Simply go to manscaped.com. Quote the discount code BADGER. You get 20% off, you get free shipping, and you get some seriously quality equipment. Manscaped.com. Together, we save balls. Who has been the biggest influence on your cricket career? Oh, that is a really good question. Wouldn't single anybody out as such. I mean, obviously, as a young player, you look up to to people like you. I looked up to Graham Gooch and Gordon Greenwich and kind of real heroes of mine. And then as I was coming through, Colin Page, who I mentioned, who told me I'd never, ever play for Kent again because I annoyed him in a, in a second team game. And then he dropped me for two games and gave me the slap across the wrists that I needed when I was probably getting a bit too carried away, a bit too big for my boots. And every now and again, I do need bringing down a peg or two. So, so what did you do to annoy him? I'm not going to just let you pass by that. Well, it, w- it was one of those involved. I got a bit stuffed by senior colleagues who perhaps saw me coming through on the ranks. It was, a, it was a long story. I won't go into too many details, but it involved a couple of girls that we'd met the night before in a club and they came to the game and watched us train around the back. It ended up picking up our kit and taking it into the dressing room. And uh, I think that the word got back to Colin Page that stuff was going on in the dressing room, which wasn't happening. It was just girls had picked this stuff up and put it in our dressing room. But that was, um, yeah, by the time that it got a third hand back to him, all kinds of shenanigans were being talked about. So I was... Savagely dropped from the uh, from the second team, but you know he, he invited me back a few games later. I got a hundred, and he offered me a contract. So he, but he was a he was a, a kind of stickler and someone that kind of knocked me into shape fairly early on. And then there would be a fellow called Chris Stone, who was our second team coach at Kent, and he would be the person that I would go to when my game was struggling, and it was struggling for a lot of the mid to late nineties, um, and. Before my really good season in 2001, we sat down, we watched a load of videos, we talked things through, and he was very much on the same page with me. It was, let's just go and give it a whirl. Um, and I put a lot of that turnaround down to down to him. You talk about that. Um, I know Kevin Sharp reasonably well, and he talk, talks about, from the coaching perspective, having that, not just the technical side of things, but that emotional connection and understanding somebody's a human being. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about there, where you, you can sit down and talk about your worries and your fears, not just about the four defensive shot? Yeah, I, I think so. 
but but I think as well, it's, it's knowing as a coach, and I'm now a coach, coach junior players and coach head coach of Whitstable Cricket Club. It, it's about that relationship, but it's about understanding what makes that person tick. And I think Chris realised that for a lot of years, I've been trying to be something I wasn't. When John Wright came to Ken, John Wright did a lot of fantastic things at Ken, but he was very much a sell the sell your wicket like your life depends on it and that was never really my style my nickname is Tav after Chris Tavray um, because I was very much they wanted me to play in that mode uh, you know and I was technically quite correct and I wasn't a massive hitter of the ball so they wanted me to be that obdurate opening batsman see the shine off the ball that was never re- that didn't really fit with my personality it was never really the way I wanted to play and I think Stoney knew that and he just said but like this is going to be your last season just go out we need to make some technical changes because you're a bit all over the place, but just go play, just go play with freedom. And that coincided with John Inverarity coming in, whose kind of mantra was just, just go and do it, just go play. And it was a bit like what's happening with England's test team at the moment. You know, I'm not suggesting I'm, I was Johnny Bearstowing it everywhere, but there was a, an unshackling of our batsmen. And that's to take nothing away from Daryl Foster and John Wright, who were the, the, the previous coaches, but they just said, just go play. Um, and and that was like just it was a breath of fresh air, and we and not just myself, but Ed Smith, Rob Key, Matt Walker, we all went and scored runs the next few years after that. You may have already mentioned one of these, but who was the poster boy? If there was a poster on the the young Dave Fulton's wall, who would that person have been? You mentioned Gordon Greenwich and a couple of others, but uh, who would be the hero as a kid, the one that you wanted to be? Yeah, I think Gucci. I think Gucci. I mean, there wouldn't have been a mustachioed Gucci on my on my wall. That was probably reserved for Madonna. But the, um, the yeah, Gucci was the guy that I kind of looked up to and just loved the way he did things, the way he played on the front foot as an opening batsman. Loved the quicks, you know, just standing really upright. And if they bashed it into him, he'd just stand there and whack it through mid wicket. And I always prided myself. My point of difference was always until my eye injury was always being able to play the quicks and be able to play the, the hook and pull shot good off the back foot. Um, so he was the guy that I looked up to and would have you know, modelled my game on, not that I came anywhere close to being of his standard, but he was the guy that would have been you know, my hero growing up. Somebody pointed me towards a video of you facing Wazim Makram in the Lord's final when he was banging it in short at you and you were yeah. knocking him through mid-wicket. That's what you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that was slightly different because that was my debut in the competition and I was incredibly nervous and that was a bit that that floppy hat was a bit of a prop I did sometimes in in second team cricket in one day games just wear the, the floppy hat normally against the Wazim Akram I would have put a helmet on but it was the biggest game of my life it was a debut in the competition it was 27,000 people at Lords and I thought well if he's to if he is to hit me on the head and I am to go out what a way to go you know so <laughs> I, I was worried about more other things than getting hit on the head by Wazim Akram I was worried about dropping a dolly and losing my off stump so I thought it was a prop really to say stick my chest out I'm coming at you. I'm not going to take a backward step. And that was more for my own kind of belief and confidence than it was for any other reason. But it worked okay until I got one that scudded a bit from Glen Chapel and I was on my way. Was him did try and knock it off that floppy hat? Knock it yeah, off he did. And, and funnily enough, and I always got on really well with Waz, but he, um, because we played against him over the years for Kent Lanks, obviously, and when Pakistan toured. And he always remembers that. And the first ball he always bowled to me was a bouncer, whether I had a helmet on or not. And he, he would always come down and he would point his finger and he goes, I remember you. And then uh, <laughs> and then back he'd walk. Um, and I was always happy uh, when he was bowling in my head rather than he was bowling at my stumps. Because the only time he got me was when he pitched one up and uprooted my middle pole. So I thought I've done well to 
to distract him for long enough and get him bowling at my head. We're about the same age, I think. And I, I, my first cricket was down at Canterbury. My grandma took me down to see family down there. And that, that was the era of Chris Taveray. And I mean, before that was Alan Knott and Derek Underwood. Were, were you the same? Did you go along to the St. Lawrence ground and watch those guys? And I didn't get down there because I was, for some reason, I was West Kent and we always seemed to be just incredibly busy. Um, it was always doing something with it. Chess, tables, things going around the country doing my own sport. But I mean, I was a big Kent fan. The good thing then was that the John Player League was always probably on BBC Two. Yeah. You could watch a lot of cricket. Kent were particularly successful in the 70s. So, you know, your John Shepherds, your Derek Underwoods, your Alan Elams, your Asif Bowls were, were very familiar names. And I was proud to be playing for the, you know, the Kent age group sides coming through with those guys, um, obviously, kind of bearing the, the, the flag for Kent. But my first ever bat actually was a St. Peter bat. You remember the old SP that yes, I think yeah. um, College King and company used in the I think, 79 World Cup. Um, and it was autographed by the Kent Championship winning side of 1978. And my dad won it. at a, I was actually at the, the, the auction, well, sorry, the raffle. And we won it and it hung on my bedroom wall for about three years till I was 11. And then my first school game, I took a bat out of the bag. It was about, it was pencil thin, didn't score any runs, didn't hit it off the square. And so I thought I, I took this bat off the wall like Excalibur and looked at it and thought, okay, this is the bat I'm going to use. And I sanded all those famous Kent names off. I felt oh, terrible. No. Championship winning names and out I strode to bat. But I got hundreds of runs, thousands of runs that year with my Excalibur SP. And uh, yeah, then it worked. But it was about three pound, three ounces. <laughs> I could only play you know, straight drives and the odd back foot punch. And there was no cross bat shots going on. You mentioned Chris Tavare earlier, your nickname and what have you. And I, he was somebody that I used to watch a lot. And for Kent, he used to hit it all over the place. He was quite an attacking player. Um, yeah. But when he, they took him to England, they obviously got him to play that dour role of walking to square leg and then coming back again, block, do it that for hours and then and end. And I, I always used to be really frustrated with that. Play like you do for Kent, man. Yeah, I think there was an element of that, but he was a team man, wasn't he? He was doing what uh, the, what the doctor ruled. But yeah, it wasn't Bazball, was it? It was more like <laughs> Tavball and Bazball, very different eras. Yeah, I don't think Tavball would fill up Trembridge <laughs> on a free day, would it? You are listening to the Cricket Badger Podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. If I was to take you back to any day of your career, so you could relive it for the, the glorious feeling that you had that day, which yeah. day would you want to, which 24 hours would you want to relive? Oh, am I allowed to give you a couple of options or are you, are you going to be a stickler for this? I, I, from, I'll let you have to. From a personal point of view, um, I would go back to 2001 Cricket Week, Kent against Somerset, where I got a double hundred and a hundred, both unbeaten in that game. And I don't think I've ever played better. The only reason that probably wouldn't be my top one was because we didn't win the game. I think I, took, I got those unbeaten double hundred, hundred, and then took seven catches at either short leg or silly point. And we had Somerset nine down. And that was the only thing that didn't put the icing on the cake. You know, to have won that game would have meant we we're still in the championship race and we didn't quite get over the line. Um, but probably the, the, the Norwich Union League success later that year 
And I'd relive it for a couple of reasons. One, because we actually won a competition that I played a role in. We won in 95, but I was very much a bit part player in that. So 2001, I'd, I'd played a role. I didn't play a role on that particular day at Edgbaston, but Andrew Simons did. And mm-hmm. Andrew Simons, um, you know, God rest his soul, was someone who was a, he was a force of nature. And on that day in particular, he just grabbed the game as only really he could by the scruff of the neck. So the scenario was Leicester were at Trent Bridge. If they won, they took the, the title. We were at Edgbaston, knowing that if Leicester messed it up, we had to beat Warwickshire. And we couldn't really worry about them. We had to concentrate on our game. Um, and we were coming second best to, to Warwickshire. They were chasing down a mediocre score, didn't get enough runs. Game was just, Ian Bell was playing nicely. And then Matthew Fleming threw the ball to Simo, and he bowled unbelievably quickly for a guy that was you know, an off-spinner and bowled medium pace. Recognised it was a semi deck, took five for, um, and just, just grabbed the game and changed it and we won and we had a brilliant party and to share that day again particularly with him and knowing what we know now would, would be the day that i go back to yeah we lost some good ones haven't we in the last few months but uh yeah andrew simon's r.i.p obviously there's the yin and yang with uh, the positive question i'm going to take you back and now say which day do you not want to relive the the worst day basically what's the the low point of your career yeah, good question. I, I think the low point of my career, I mean, it was necessarily a low point, but I, but I look back, I always wanted to win the championship. That was that was the thing. I was a better four-day player than I was a one-day player, and I thought that Kent had the team in the um, under under me, and in certainly late nineties through to the early noughties that we could win the championship. And two thousand and five, we are, I think second in the championship to knots maybe we were top i don't know when we were at the, the rose bowl and i mean i was one eye at that stage i could go back to that day and get out of the way of a ball from a bowling machine and maybe it would have been different but i actually don't regret that because they're they're big things that i don't think you change but we were fielding we had uh, hampshire eight down nick poffas was batting always a pain trying to get nick Bothass out. And we had probably 25 overs, 20 overs to take two wickets on what was quite a flat pitch by this stage. And I was in at slip only because I'd been hit at silly point and I couldn't really run. So I was captaining from slip. I'd always fielded slip prior to my eye injury, but after my eye injury, I wasn't catching so well. I didn't go to slip. Um, anyway, Amjad Khan is bowling to Nick Pothas and he bowls a big, dirty, wide half volley. And Pothas has just let everything go. But his eyes lit up. He went for the drive and he nicked it straight to Justin Kemp at third slip. And it went like a rocket because we were in close. And Kempy palmed it up in the air to me at first slip. And honestly, James, I kid you not, it was like the first catch you'd ever give, give to an infant. It was like, be ready, here you go, a little lollipop catch. And everyone else, as it was up in the air, and it was only gone seven or eight foot in the air, but it was a lollipop catch. Everyone started running forwards to celebrate with Amjad. But my eye injury had meant that I haven't got very good depth perception. And most of the time, I got enough visual clues for it not to be a massive issue. But this ball that was just hung up in the air with nothing you know, but blue sky behind it, I just grabbed at thin air and I had six attempts at it, juggled it between my elbows, had another go at it, and it just escaped. It fell to the floor. And the boys all turned around, couldn't believe I dropped it. I couldn't believe I dropped it. And Hampshire, we got um, the other wicket at the other end, but we had them nine down. And, and that would have got some clear water between us and, and knots going into the last couple of games of that uh, that season. And look, we, there's no guarantee we would have won the championship, but with three games to go, we would have been top instead of kind of 10, 12 points behind. Um, so if I could go back one <laughs> to one game and take one catch, that would be it. 
you mentioned the eye injury there, the the bone machine accident. That that was quite serious, wasn't it? You just mentioned how it affected you. I mean, that took your career in a slightly different path, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, I, it hastened the, the the end of my career. Albeit, I played for so that was two thousand and three preseason. I played three, four, five, six. I played for four seasons after that, but I was never the same player. And the reason I wouldn't change it was because actually I, that's the bit of my career that I look back on with most pride because I don't think a lot of people would know how difficult that was one to come back from it and two to find a way of scoring some runs and still contributing you know there were some downsides to catching I think the 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 stat I was proudest of in my career was that for an outfielder I had the highest strike rate of catching in Kent history so higher than Hooper higher than Cowdery and they're the kind of things that the little things I didn't have many stats batting-wise to cling on to, James. So the fielding one, I was like, oh, that's a good stat. But obviously that then, because I came out of catching positions, I was dropping too many. And I just let the boys down too many times. And that was in the end why I said to my wife, beginning of 2006, I can't do this anymore. I'm just dropping catches. The boys are working their socks off. The ball goes to me and I put it down. Um, yeah, I mean, I nearly lost the eye. Um, I didn't. I still don't see very well out of it at all pretty much blind in one eye. So the depth perception and all the clues that you need as a batter when the ball's travelling at 90 miles an hour or there's a sudden change of pace, you know, people could do me with slower balls very easily. Um, It was a a tough old time, but, um, and I I say this very humbly, is that um, my late brother-in-law, Richard Davis, was fighting a brain tumour at the time and he died later that year. So, you know, I had a poke in the eye in comparison to what he was going through. And there was a healthy dose of perspective right there on my doorstep. So it was not something I had made too much of a fuss about. When that ball hit you, did you did it knock you out? Did you know you were in trouble straight away? I knew I was in trouble straight away. It didn't knock me out. It's, I mean, it is on YouTube. It's one of the, the things I'm most famous for. I think it's been watched hundreds of thousands of times. So, yeah, ball was put into the bowling machine when I wasn't ready. And that's the thing that, that, that galls me a bit. Because actually, if I'd been ready, we were doing it at, we took it. It was a bouncer session, short ball session. We took it from increments of seventy miles an hour. We got it up to ninety miles an hour, and I was playing buckets of ninety miles an hour, no problem at all. And then, you know, coach had a you know switch off moment. Ball put in. I'm still looking down at my feet, and just as I turned, it it, it, it hit me flush on the eyeball. Tried to spit the eyeball out the back of my head, and um, yeah, tore off my eyelid, ruptured a tear duct, and yeah, that was pretty much career had taken a, a different turn from that moment. But I was up after six. It's my old university boxing days. I was up after six and I was on my feet and ready to go. But I was, yeah, I just had, I, all I remember from it was I had this horrible burning sensation in my right eye. I couldn't see out of it and I knew I was in a bit of bother. I'm going to put you in the body of anybody you want to. You're going to jump into the skin of a current cricketer. It can be a past cricketer if you want to go down that route and you can live their life for 24 hours. You can have their skill, their talent and be them. Who would you pick? I could be them for 24 hours. I mean, I suppose there are obvious choices like your Butlers and your Stokeses or your Virats, but I think I would go for someone like a current cricketer, you say. It's got to be current. It can be past if you want to. but I'd quite fancy being either a Murali just because to have that much fun coming in off two and a half paces, bamboozling batsmen would be fun. But I think I'd like to be a quick bowler. So I wouldn't mind being maybe a Shoaib Akhtar or Wazim Akram, just somebody that could bowl. There's just that instant respect that you get if you can bowl upwards at 90 miles an hour and knock people's heads off. So I think it would be someone like that. You know, Shoaib looked like he worked too hard for me. That looked a bit too much effort charging in like a lunatic from the boundary. So maybe someone who was a bit more effortless, maybe someone like a Kirtley or a Wazim. 
just to know what it felt like to kind of walk back 20 yards and have everyone in total awe and a little bit of fear. So one of those guys. I stood behind the net at Old Trafford once. Sherry was practicing. Nobody in the net. And I was just behind, he's probably about six foot behind the stumps. And then there's the net. And I was stood maybe another four foot behind that. Every time he bowled, I flinched. Even though I knew I was safe, I flinched because he was rapid. Yeah. And I'd never, well, obviously from I've never been at the standard of you have, and I've never faced anybody that quickly. I don't know how you'd see it. Absolutely crazy. The ICC have just put up a new name tag. It's the big office there. And Mr. D Fulton is on the door. You walk in, you're in charge of the entire thing. What one thing, what's the first thing you'd do? What would you change? What would you introduce? What would you tinker with? Is there anything on your mind that you've always fancied doing something about in cricket? That's a big question and one we might have to revisit as we go on because it's one that I'm going to have to, have to think about. I'd, I'd love to see, I mean, it, it would have been to have some sort of test championship if, if you'd have asked me this three or four years ago because I thought always, I've always felt that test cricket has needed a bit more context um, because I would love to see it thrive. And I think what we're seeing at the moment with the England team and what Virat Kohli did for test cricket in India has rejuvenated it to an extent but you look at some places in the world where it's not being watched I would love to have some sort of method where we could just get bums on seats to watch test cricket um probably here's one for you okay what I would like to do is in this country and this may be one for the ECB rather than the ICC but you know forgive me my position of power just for a second um I would love to see a bit of 2020 cricket played at the Olympic Stadium in front of 90,000 people, a bit like they've got in it. They've got the MCG, obviously, in Australia. They've got big stadium in India. You know, we we have got stadiums in this country which hold 30, 28,000. And if you look at the people that go to a Lord's Test match or even to a one-day international, a lot of your ordinary cricket fans are priced out of the market when it comes to, to going to these big games. And it's always your members who get first dibs on different things. And I would like to see tickets at no more than a tenner. 80,000 people, rest of the world versus an England team, maybe get Morgs back in to captain it because it's an exhibition match, you know, as one last hurrah, call it a Morgs testimonial. He can give the money to charity. Everyone would support it because of everything he's done. And you could have 80,000 people in the midsummer when West Ham aren't playing there at the Olympic Stadium and go, boom, and have a real showpiece occasion for cricket. So there you go. I thought of something. I, I really like that idea. I really like that idea. Make it, you can make it happen. You have the power. <laughs> the badger power. It's that badger style. If you were starting your career again so as a youngster, is there anything you'd do differently? And um, would the twelve-year-old be proud of what you've achieved? If you uh, were to look forward as a twelve-year-old and see where you are now, would he be happy? Um, yeah, I think a twelve-year-old would be happy. But I'm never. I'm not one of these that, that says, "Oh, I wouldn't change a thing." Because I always think that's a missed opportunity. When people go, oh, no, I'd leave it exactly as is. I don't want to change a thing because it's all part of life experience. Really? You wouldn't change anything? <laughs> that's, that seems like a missed opportunity to me. Yeah, look, I, I would go back to my former self and just the message that I gave myself before 2001, I would have given myself a lot earlier and just said, go. And I, I'd say the same to my boys. I've got two sons who are who are kind of budding cricketers. Go and play with expression I mean, a lot of what we're seeing at the moment a lot of what Owen Morgan brought to the one day team a lot of what um, McCullum and Stokes are bringing to the test team it is just go and give it a whirl go and enjoy it express it's a game and it goes back to your earlier question about you know is it a job for a too long it became a bit of a job for me 
So that's the message that I would give to myself. I'd probably tell myself to work on my bowling a bit as well because one wicket in 15 years would give you an indication of just how poor I was and a second string might have been handy. But uh, yeah, a couple of strings, a bit more freedom and expression, maybe get to the gym a bit more so I can pump a few more out of the park. That'd be it. I'll tell you what, if you go back through my life, I'd change many, many things. They say... All rock stars want to be sportsmen and vice versa. We're getting on to the more frivolous questions now. Rock stars want to be sportsmen and vice versa. If you could have been famous doing anything else, whether that be on the pyramid stage at Glastonbury or starring in a feature film, what would you have fancied doing? Well, yeah, absolutely wanted to be a, would have wanted to be a rock star. I mean, I always quite fancied the saxophone. I was a bit of a Spandau Ballet fan growing up. So I quite would have liked, you know, for Stephen Norman or something. But yeah, probably a lead guitarist. That uh, I was quite into, quite heavily into my my soul music and my R and B. One of my claims to fame was I danced on stage with George Benson at the Royal Albert Hall, only by virtue of the fact that Matthew Fleming's debenture tickets were right next to the stage. So it was literally two foot, and you were on the stage. That's how good his tickets were. And George was just about two yards away from me. And at one stage, when everyone was up and dancing, I just stepped forward onto the stage and was dancing was dancing with George. So um, yeah, that would have so absolutely been a some sort of guitarist or saxophonist. You know, or lead vocalist, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I will still, and I've wrecked many a good pair of suit trousers at a wedding doing a knee slide to Bon Jovi, living on a prayer. And the, the last pair of trousers was ruined because I completely misjudged the floor. If it was a shiny kind of wooden floor, it would have been good sliding right back, playing the guitar. Unfortunately, it was a stone floor. I hit and just pitched forward onto my face and ripped a hole out of my trousers. But yeah, there's a, there's a wannabe rock star in there. If you could meet anybody, living or dead, the old sort of dinner party kind of question, you could have one or three. I'm not I'm not fussy on this one. Meet anybody living or dead, who would you like to meet? Um, who would I like to meet? Good question. Um, well, I mean, probably 400 of your guests have said Nelson Mandela, but we go Mandela for, for, for one. Um, I've met already. I was going to say Warney. It'd be nice to bring Warney and Mandela in the room, but I've met Warney and played poker with Warney and stuff, so we'd probably have to be someone that I've never met before. I'd quite like to stick Mandela in a room, maybe with Lance Armstrong. Let's get some... So just to I'd quite like to find out what went on there with, mm. with Lance. So Lance Armstrong, Nelson Mandela, and, yeah, someone else will come back to me. Someone with yeah, maybe a comedic touch, maybe Jimmy Carr or a McIntyre, just someone... Like, Sean Locke would be Sean Locke would be the other person to throw in there. Oh, yeah. I'm sure Sean Locke would be brilliant at just just pushing Armstrong's buttons, and and I reckon Mandela would have a laugh as well. So there you go, those three. You need a comedian in there, wouldn't you? I think yeah, well, I'm sure. lighten it a little bit because you've got some, you know, you've got some serious kind of blood doping going on. You've got um, you know, long walks of freedom. Nelson's had you know, some some great moments, many great moments, but I'm not sure how light it would be. Sean Locke would bring them to the surface. They're going to make Tav the movie. <laughs> who stars in it? Who plays you in the movie about your life? Oh, well, I'd like to think Brad Pitt in his pomp, James. But, uh, yeah, as my kids go, cringe, they cringe. Um, who plays? Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll go. We'll go. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll go Brad Pitt. No messing around. Boom, straight in. Do you know what? There's These good-looking movie actors, they get all of the roles on this as well. They do. Yeah, they do. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. 
Listen to the deal. Listen to the deal on Spotify. What was the last time you can remember feeling really nervous? Are you a nervous kind of fella? Did you get the jitters or were you? did you take everything in your stride? No, not everything in the stride. I think anyone that says they took everything in their stride would, would be kidding you. Um, no, I mean, I am not. And my family would say, you know, I'm incredibly laid back and really relaxed and I can speak in front of a room full of people and I can put myself out of my comfort zone and will generally I- I embrace things. So trying to think of the last time I was really nervous might be might be difficult. I think probably the, the the turn that springs to mind was when I was hosting my first ever cricket writers lunch in London, and I looked out and having you know worked my opening kind of few gags and speech <laughs> of my speech, I looked out to see George DeBell and Nick Holt and Dean Wilson and all these people that I kind of worked with and looked up to from a journalistic point of view, and everything went completely out of my head. I couldn't remember where I was going to start or what I was going to say. So I had a, a slightly dubious first couple of minutes, but I warmed up. That was a time that I remember thinking, actually, this is quite nerve-wracking, which surprised me a bit because normally I would go and speak to a room full of people without too much of a worry. But that, that, that did hit me a bit. You're obviously in the Sky Studios now. I, I commented to you before you came on that I've, I'm not used to seeing you um, with just a T-shirt on. I mean, did that make you nervous? I mean, you'd, you'd done a little bit of work with Sky while you were still playing, hadn't you? But when the transition into actually doing that on a more permanent basis and seeing the red light come on, is that something that you took in your stride? Yeah, I mean, to start with, I went from, I was on a boundary edge, so I was still very much in familiar surroundings. So it was less presenting, it was more reporting. And it was reporting on county cricket. So I was very much in my comfort zone. And I knew that I could waffle away to the cows come home. And I knew my subject matter inside and out because I'd just come out of the game. So um, reporting on the, you know, from the boundary edge, just giving updates, minute, minute and a half, maybe interviewing someone from the county game was, was not really a problem. The transition into presenting was obviously more nerve wracking because you're suddenly sitting there in a studio and you know, that was slightly more out of my comfort zone. But but the Sky guys were really good at, you know, making me feel comfortable. And it's not, you know, rocket science and you practice it and you rehearse it to a point that you've got it down. So, that, you know, there are some nervy moments when there are technological issues and things don't go quite according to plan. But again, I think that's a strength. That's when you kind of earn your money as a presenter. Things are going crazy behind the scenes, but you're able to keep level-headed. Is it quite nice to do stuff? I mean, obviously, the work you do with Sky is across all sports, isn't it? So it's quite nice to actually cover some stuff that you've not really... Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sports. I'm a, I'm a sports fan, um, full stop. So yes, I, I, I'm very comfortable with the cricket, but I'm a Nottingham Forest fan who've obviously had a brilliant uh, season. And back in the, the Premier League after 23 years, I was at Wembley to see them. Uh, you know, I, I love my golf. I love my tennis. Um, you know, the, the highlight of my broadcasting career would have been updating the the World Cup final, the barest of all mar- barest of margins of game, whilst also updating Djokovic of uh, Federer, who was playing. You know, they were at Wimbledon yeah. on the same day. That was some day, that wasn't it? Some day, and I and, and it was hilarious because my colleague Julian um, Warren was updating the, the Grand Prix from Silverstone, and I was doing the cricket and the and the tennis. And you know, I've got to describe to the nation the the kind of the super over and the run out and everything else. And it then dawned on me when I spoke for three minutes without taking a breath, some of my best work that actually no one would have watched me doing that because if you loved your cricket, why are you going to watch some bloke on sports news talking about it? when you can just watch it either on Sky Cricket or on Channel 4, of course, because it was on terrestrial TV as well. And the same with the tennis. If you love your tennis, you're not watching me talk about Djokovic-Federer, you're just watching the action. So three people looking for some transfer news probably stumbled across my cricket report. I wish he'd stop talking about this World Cup thing. I want to know if he was going to Arsenal. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and I'm sure that's what people were thinking. I'd say, get on to the transfers. 
What would be the top item on your bucket list? Things to do before you die. Is there something that you're, you're desperate to do and never done? Um, I, I would say play at Augusta would be right up there in terms of you know take my take my boys and maybe a golf pro or my brother-in-law um, just to go just to go play Augusta. That would that would be wouldn't get any better. Maybe Pebble Beach, but that would be there. You can remember the Fonz from Happy Days, can't you? On a scale of one to ten, with ten being the Fonz and uh, one being not the Fonz, how cool are you? <laughs> how cool am I? Oh, I'm probably, if you ask my kids, probably a between a two and a three. You know, I'd like to think I'm about an 8.59, James, <laughs> but they would bring me right back down. I once sang Going Loco down in Acapulco live on Sky News just because Novak Djokovic was playing in Acapulco and that was the link, and the yeah. link going loco down in Acapulco, and I sang it, and they both said, "Dad, we don't." They text me, "Dad, we can't go into school now. We've just seen you. We've just seen you sing on Sky News." Cringe, <laughs> and I said, "Lads, no one you goes to go to school with is watching Sky News. Don't worry about it." Uh, they, yeah. they let you back in the house, though. They did, but yeah, probably about a three. I mean, in the day, Matt Walker and I would be seen in the local club in Canterbury in velvet suits. So I would wear a blue velvet suit, walks out a maroon velvet suit. And, uh, you know, we, we we pushed that style quite hard for a while. So we'd like to think we were really cool. Other people would disagree. But it's what's in your own mind, James, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. When you look in the mirror, as long as you're happy. <laughs> I'm happy with what I saw. If you had, I'm going to give you a time machine. It's actually just pulling up outside your house as we speak. You can take it forwards, backwards. Where would you take it? Um, well, I don't think you're going to take it. Take it forwards. I suppose I can come straight back. I mean, yeah, it would be lovely to see where we're going to be as a family in in ten, fifteen years' time. But I also would quite like that to be a surprise in a funny kind of way. So I'd probably go backwards. Um, but where to would be the question? Where would I go back to? How far would I go back? Would I want to change history? Am I allowed? What are the rules? Is it? Am I allowed to change history? Probably not allowed to. to just you go back. Have a glimpse. You can watch. It's a watching gig only. Uh, no, you, there's there's no rules with this. You can do what you like with it. You're in charge of this time machine now. It's been delivered. Okay. You just go back and reset that bowling machine. Yeah, you know what? I wouldn't change that. I wouldn't change resetting the bowling machine. I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't change that because, as I said, that was the bit I was proudest of. Um, you know, would I change anything? Would I change, you know, there's bad things that have happened along the way to people that you think actually you could change that and they might still be with us. But I don't think that's, I think that's kind of cheating with your, with your bowling machine, family members and different things that you'd like to go back. And I think things like that shouldn't be messed with. So I'd probably just be really boring and go back to a time when I had an opportunity to take that catch <laughs> the rose bowl which you can see still haunts me i'd go back there and i'd know it was coming and i'd probably get my shirt out because i'd you know, just hug it in and kent might have won a championship in 2005 yeah there were probably better reasons for going back but that's the one that keeps springing to mind if only you'd played in the days where they used to catch in the top hats it might have been better than it i would have got more of a chance of groping it in <laughs> Jacob and I sent the Badger a message and now I'm on the podcast with this jingle. If you would like to get in touch with the Cricket Badger podcast, then tweet at cricket underscore badger. Cricketers are very fortunate that uh, you follow the sun, basically, and often play abroad and what have you. Is there anywhere in the world that's uh, really struck your fancy on your travels? If you could live anywhere else in the world, where would you like to have a second home? Yeah, I'd love to have a, a, if I had a choice of a second home, somewhere on Sydney Harbour. I was lucky enough to play a couple of years 
for Petersham Marrickville, who are now Ramwick Petersham in the New South Wales Premier League. Love my colleagues, love that life. I played out in Perth. I had a couple of years in Cape Town. So I have did all that in the early 90s. And, and in a lot of ways, that was the best bit about being a professional cricketer. It didn't actually help my game coming back over here because I probably burnt the candle at too many too many ends at, uh, in, the, in the Southern Hemisphere and came back hardly recharged, probably in need of rest. But it, it was, yeah, they were, they, were, they were great times that I look back on and think how privileged to be able to see the world getting a ball around the field. So, yeah, Sydney Harbour would be somewhere that... Uh, and and I, I was lucky enough at 15, 16 to tour New Zealand with Kent Scores as well. And that was a, that was a lovely place. So, yeah, probably, but I'd go, I'd go Sydney. If you can't burn the candle at both ends... When you go to places like that, then you should, you don't deserve to go to places like that, do you really? If you could change one thing about yourself, what would you change? Um, from a cricket perspective, I'd love to have a better a better left arm generally to be able to, you know, I would have loved to have been out of bowl. That would look like a lot of fun being out of bowl. I mean, one week in 15 years, I didn't have a great throw. Um, the old left shoulder hanging on by a thread for most of my career. So I would have liked to have been able to contribute more in, in that regard. Um, other than that, I'm pretty happy with, with how I've gone. So, yeah, that would be it. You had a big rap at one stage from Steve Ward, didn't you? He played under you at Kent and was very complimentary of your captaincy style and you as a player and, and everything else. And I, I, I remember the time where, I mean, it's always been the time, England looking for top-order batsmen and captains. Um, we've had that recently. Is that something that you felt you got very close to at one stage? Yeah, I, I know I got close to it. Not so much the captaincy, but um, certainly got very close to playing because NASA picked me for the 2001 Headingley test um, that, that Butch ended up scoring 173 unbeaten. So the initial selection was that Butch was dropped for that test match and that I was in. And I only found that out three or four years later in NASA's autobiography. At the time, I knew I was close. Uh, Matthew Fleming was in contact, I think, with David Graveney, and he said, the message to me was, look, you're close, keep keep going, keep your head down. You know, if you score enough runs, it, it, it might well happen. It was Ash's year. I was playing as well as I've ever played. But they they did a U-turn on the way back. And, you know, to be fair to Butch, he, he never played better than that day. So that was almost certainly the right way to go. Although the way I tell it is I might have knocked him off a bit quicker with 185, not out. But <laughs> uh, but fair play to, to Butch for, 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 for that inning. So I, I knew I was close. The Steve War stuff was lovely. And I got on really well with Steve and still do. I mean, you know, occasional contact with him. It was a small sample size, is all I'd say. He was only there for five or six weeks, so I must have had a good five or six weeks. I was at the top of my game on and off the field. Uh, I batted with him a few times. I got 170-odd against Lancashire, against Jimmy Anderson, one of his first games. With, and Steve got 60 or 70-odd, I think. So that was nice to bat with him. So I, I, I played quite well in the period he was here. Um, we had a good team at Kent with some young players. And, you know, I, I think yeah, you move a fielder, it goes to them. And Steve was in the team. You look like quite a decent captain. So it was lovely of him to say what he said. He didn't have to say it. But, yeah, I, I wouldn't advise people to follow Steve War's tips because me as the next captain of England was a bit of a bit of a long shot. But it was lovely <laughs> for him to have said that. That, that Butch um, thing at Headingley, I mean, obviously, as you say, he played incredible innings that day. But that's a, one of those sliding doors moments. You get that during your life, don't you, where if they picked you, where would you have gone instead? You know, it could have could have been better. It could have been worse, couldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it was funny because the um, that was 2001. And my wife and I have talked about this, talked about my eye injury. You know, if I'd have played for England and who knows, had maybe even a, even a bit of an England career, it might have taken me in a different, down a different route. We might never have met. We wouldn't have the kids. You know, things happen for, things happen for a reason. Mm. And a journalist phoned me up after NASA's autobiography came out and said, you know, Dave, you, you were picked um, and then you, then you were discarded before you'd even kind of 
got in the dressing room. How do you feel about that? And it was the day after my eldest son had been born and I was on my way to the hospital to pick my wife and my newborn son up. And I was like, look, if you're looking for something for me to kind of turn around and go, oh, you know, I said, I couldn't be in a better place. You know, I'm just picking up my newborn son. Life's good. Butch got 173 not out. Absolutely fair play to him. One of the great test match innings, one of the great test matches from an England perspective. There's no, there's no bitterness here. What will be, will be. I'm chilled with it. Often the uh, the non bitter stories don't make the front page, do they? That's the no, trouble. Well, that's, I think they were looking for for something a bit punchier, and I'm like, mm, yeah. sorry. I hate butchery. Stole my life. <laughs> yeah, my dad wasn't a butch fan, but you know, he was like, he was like, play butcher, stop. Okay, I went, Dad. It's fine. He's a good player. He's a lovely fella. Let it go. What will you be doing, Dave Fulton? We're on question number 19. We nearly got there. Um, what will you be doing in 10 years' time? Will it be more of the same? Have you got anything else planned? Well, yeah, I mean, look, you just never know, do you? I've never been one to plot and plan too far ahead. I'm doing a psychology master's at the moment, sport and exercise psychology. And master's, I haven't studied since, well, my, I graduated in 93. Lockdown came along, work dried up, as it did for a lot of people. And I thought, well, how can I make best use of my time? Um, other than enjoying the lovely weather we had and everything else, um, and you know, spending good time with the family, I thought, well, let's let's study. So I've done some online learning. I've had to defer it for a year just because work's come back and I've had to work to pay some bills and it's been ridiculously crazy busy. So I've put it off a year, but I've really enjoyed that. I'm enjoying the coaching that I'm doing at, at Whitstable. So last couple of years, I've been head coach at Whitstable. I've come out of retirement to play with my sons. So I'm, I'm, I'm hitting the ball around the field again. Not very well. Enough of that. Um, so I'm enjoying being involved in cricket again at the kind of, coalface so to speak and I think you know I might have a role to play down the line at whatever level it could be with, with kids I'm proud to be working with Canterbury Academy who are um, into the last uh, into the semi-finals of the nationals and they're a comprehensive school they've beaten Beads, they've beaten Epsom College they've beaten Bradfield we've got Winchester uh, College tomorrow in the semi-final and we're a comprehensive school we've been playing cricket for for eight years um, so really looking forward to, to doing more with them. I've been involved with them for a couple of years. My boys play there. A lot of talented players are there. Um, so just to, to, to see where that side of things may take me. Um, in terms of the broadcasting, I'd love to still be on screen and doing different things, but you know what it's like. It's a, perhaps a younger man or a younger woman's game. And, you know, as you, I don't know how many years I've got left, but we'll just we'll, we'll ride that wave and see where it takes us. Former teammate of yours is a good example of how things change, isn't it? Rob Key going from being on screen and um, and hearing his voice chatting about the test match. He's now being in charge of the whole caboodle. I saw his wife, saw his wife and daughter yesterday, bizarrely, at an under-15 game. I haven't seen Fleur and um, his daughter, Aaliyah, for, for quite a long time. And they, my youngest is good friends with Aaliyah. And obviously we were very close to Rob Key. He was an usher at my wedding all those years ago but I messaged him as you do after he got the job and he messaged back and we did a little zoom chat like we're doing here for, for five minutes but um, other than that I haven't caught up with him but what a brilliant start he's had he said buckle up for the ride didn't he with McCullum and Stokes yeah. <laughs> he must be loving life uh, at the minute because it was a it was a ballsy call but it's one that has played immediate dividends a fair play yeah key ball buzz ball Stokes ball whatever you call it it's, it's been rather exciting hasn't it the last uh, last few weeks watching the England uh, test team play with I mean like you said before play to enjoy it take the shackles off and see where it takes you isn't it it's that no crime in losing a game of cricket is there and I, I think the crime is always when you don't try and win a game of cricket and I think that if we think back a year to that run chase at Lords that never happened when England didn't go for that total set by Kane Williamson and you contrast that with now where they would have probably chased it down in 45 overs or lost they might have got bowled out but what would the crowd rather see 
you know, a team taking it on and going for it and falling short or a team not even bothering to chase it. And I think that shift needs to happen in sport because it's an entertainment business. There are plenty of other options for punters to go and watch exciting sport. There's all kinds of off- opportunities to do that. And cricket has to realise, even test cricket, which has its traditions, that it's sport, it's entertainment, and there's a game to be won. So go and try and win it. And if, if you can't win it, then you try and draw it. You should always try and win it first. I think that, I mean, there's bound to be days where the wheels come off a little bit because you can't play at 100 miles an hour and get away with it all the time, can you? But it's been tremendous, hasn't it? Bairstow and Stokes and and when that happens, and you're quite right, but when that happens, I think the message from Stokes and McCullum will be, don't care. You know, and Owen Morgan was the same. I remember yeah. in the interview he did when he said, when I was asked about, you know, results more important or the way you play. And he said, we're not worried about results at the moment. This was a couple of years before the World Cup. It's all about how we play. You know, we have to play front foot cricket. We have to be brave. And that was the message that Owen Morgan was talking, you know, two or three years before the World Cup because he was trying to win the World Cup. And if you lose a little series along the way, so be it. The bigger picture is difficult in sport because, you know, if you think Premier League, it's all about staying up. It's all about getting your three points. It's about the next game. It's true, but those that can see the bigger picture um, are the leaders that people want to follow. I'd love to be a fly in the wall in the Indian dressing room when they're making their plans for this <laughs> test match because they're going to be completely different to the ones that they would have made last year because they're up against a totally different beast, aren't they? Yeah, three slips of gully and a long on, please. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, be interesting to see. We have got to question number 20. Thank you very, very much indeed for joining me today, Dave Fulton. It's been um, really good to have a chat with you today. The final question, some people struggle to get their heads around this. So if you had been asking yourself the questions today and you ask many people questions, so you know how to interview, what would you have asked of yourself to get a, a fantastic and exclusive answer? What have I failed to ask you that I would have got a good answer with? That's an inter- that's an interviewer's cop out, James. If ever I've heard one, yeah, I've got some nineteen good questions. Now try and think of a better one. Crikey, yeah, people struggle to get. Give me some examples of what other people have said, and I'll come up with one. Well, are you an open book? I mean, I guess that's the question. Are you an open book? Have you told Have you told me everything? Or do you hide things in the in the corners of your life? Yeah, nothing. Nothing is is hidden with me. I'm a completely open book. There's nothing nothing to hide. I can't think of anything more interesting. It's a real disappointing end to uh, what would I ask? What would I ask myself? Um, I suppose the only thing that I kind of haven't touched on. It's not really asking me a question. It's, it's, it's tell it's, tell me about some of those quirky claims to fame. I guess I've got a couple of quirky claims to fame, which are that I ended Viv Richards's career, James, um, because in his final first class match against Kent in 1993, the great Viv Richards was caught Fulton bold Hooper in his last match for 80-odd, of about 28 balls. That was the day after Glamorgan had won the Sunday League against Kent at Canterbury. So we played Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Monday. You remember those bizarre days when the Sunday League was kind of wedged in between the championship games. So the Glamorgan had won the Sunday League. It was a straight shootout between us and them. Viv played beautifully, got 40-odd not out, saw Glamorgan home. And then they had to chase 400 on the last day, which they were never going to do because they were comatose drunk um, and the championship game was pretty meaningless so uh, he came out and he just swung he hit Dean Headley for two enormous sixes hoops came on and I was at long on and he just kept hitting sixes over my head and I knew that there would come a time where he'd miscue one and when that ball landed in my hands as it did that was the end of of Viv's professional career so you know I only caught him but I tell it that I ended his career I'm I'm sorry I don't like that because Viv is one of my heroes you finished him up 
You know what? I, I did. And also, he's one of my heroes as well. When I felt bad, I almost thought <laughs> I'd chuck it for six because it's almost like he should go to 100 in his last ever first-class game. Um, but he was he was still pretty drunk on rum and coke, I think, after the celebrations from the night before. Um, my other quirky claim to fame was that in 1994, South Africa's um, first first-class game since um, apartheid had finished and since their reintroduction into international cricket. So their first game back in England was a warm-up game against Kent. And I opened the batting and the bowling. <laughs> Um, in that game, a batting because I was an opening batsman. I mustered, I think, four or five runs, and then it rained, and we set up a game, and I had to bowl one ball before they declared, or we did. And uh, Mark Benson decided that I would be entrusted, and I ran in really nervous because it had to be a dot, and I thought if I bowl this, it could easily be a wide, and that would mess up the equation. So I ran into Gary Kirsten, and I'm sure he still remembers it to this day as being one of the most intimidating prospects. But I ran in, held it cross seam, and bowled a. 58 mile an hour seam up delivery, which he patted back to me. So opened the batting and the bowling against South Africa, first Englishman in God knows how many years. Not very interesting or deep, James, but you know a couple of quirky things that uh, that I quite like. I like that you you reintroduce South Africa into the world game. That's, that's, both, that's like yeah, thank you. In, in both ways, um, there have been a few questions coming in. I'm sorry I haven't got got round to actually asking them all because obviously this is a 20 questions kind of format. But somebody on Facebook says thoroughly enjoying listening to David. And may I say he's a Stuart Pierce lookalike? I guess as a Forest fan, you'd take that, wouldn't he? Um, yeah, I mean, look, I don't think I, I, I preferred the Brad Pitt analogy earlier, but yeah, look, I love um, Psycho was one of my my heroes. I stood on a terrace many a time as he's kind of revved us up behind the goals back in the day when you could stand and yeah I've, I've met him a couple of times at, at Sky so yeah he's an absolute hero of mine I had Psycho with a big three on my chest um, t-shirt, t-shirt which I often well don't wear anymore it's a bit tight but uh, yeah <laughs> I love that t-shirt love Psycho David Fulton it has been an absolute pleasure to uh, have you on the Cricket Badger podcast today thank you for answering the 20 questions and uh, well best wishes to you in the future hopefully that next 10 years goes as you want it to and I uh, wish you well. Thanks, mate. Likewise. Go well. Thanks for having me. Sports Social Podcast Network.